Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, Episode 26. Today, Professor Olson talks about the short story by J.R.R. Tolkien, Smith of Wooten Major, and discusses the nature of the realm of fairy. Today we move on to Smith of Wooten Major, and uh, here, once again, uh, I, my chronology is very dubious. As you can see, I'm making no real effort to present these stories in chronological order. Um, I am attempting instead to present them in an order which is entirely other than chronological uh, and probably entirely inscrutable, even to myself. But um, this story was written actually in the 60s. This was very late in Tolkien's life. The reason I have chosen this one is that this is by far sort of the purest fairy tale that he's ever told, that Tolkien ever wrote, in the sense of uh, he actually began this story as an illustration of fairy and fairy (coughs) stories. Um, It came about when he was asked to write an introduction uh, to the story The Golden Key by George MacDonald, actually. Someone was doing an edition of that and wanted him to write a little intro. Asking Tolkien to do something like that was always a very risky proposition as it would at least take him a decade to do it and it would likely never get done, which indeed was the case in this one. He never finished that introduction to The Golden Key. But while he was working on the introduction to The Golden Key, he found himself, as he was classifying that story by MacDonald as a fairy story, and he wanted to explain the difference between fairy, F-A-I-R-Y, the common word, uh, and capital F, fairy, as in the title of this course. And in order to explain what fairy was and what it was like, he began a little analogy. He's like, okay, so imagine you've got this big cake, right, and there's this celebration, and there's a big cake, and there's a star in it, and then it just, like, that introduction became the story, and then the introduction didn't get written, as I said. Um, so as I, so the, the, the interesting thing about the origin of this story is that this is like his way of trying to explain what fairy is about. So that's why we're reading this instead of others. Um, also, it's a lot shorter than the entire Lord of the Rings, which we could also read, theoretically, uh, in this context. Not just because it's a, it's a fantasy story, obviously, um, but because it's also a fairy story. And if you read both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you will quickly see, especially after the reading you've already done this semester, you will quickly see the elements there. Often quite explicit um, in ways which will very pointedly recall to you moments that we've seen, especially in the medieval stories, as, for instance, when Bilbo and the dwarves go into Mirkwood and they start (coughs) encountering the elves and hearing the elves off in the distance, very much like Orfeo and his random encounters, and what he hears and sees from a distance in the forest. Um, When the Fellowship of the Ring is on the boundaries of Lothlorien, and Boromir really doesn't want to go in those those woods, right? Because he's heard that this is... There's there's a lady in there, uh, and this is a a magical and dangerous place. And, of course, Aragorn corrects him, but doesn't refute him, right? It's not... Perilous, yes, it's a perilous country. Um, you're not going to be in. You're going to be safe, physically safe. Certainly, we will be safe from the orcs pursuing us in there. But it's dangerous. It's perilous. Perilous was one of the words that Tolkien very frequently used to describe the realm of fairy. Um, anyway, uh, elf. By the way, uh, the word elf is a synonym for fairy. Um, that they were the two of them were used 
uh, uh, not exactly interchangeably, but they're pretty much synonymous um, in the Middle Ages. So when Tolkien describes his elves uh, in any of his works, they're just they're the people of fairy. Um, he call, in the, his original drafts he called them fairies, um, and then he changed it to elves later on. Um, so anyway, all of you know, almost all of Tolkien's stuff could basically be classified as fairy story. But here we get a kind of up-close examination of the nature of fairy itself. And that's what I really want to start with. Um, I want to start with Smith's wanderings in fairy. We'll come back to sort of the frame of that, that is uh, what goes on in the town of Wooten Major in the business with the, the master cook uh, afterwards. But, but I want to just start off with fairy itself. What does Smith find? What did you find? I mean, now you've seen a whole bunch of versions of fairy and of humans wandering in fairy and encountering it. What struck you about Smith's uh, forays into fairy? Yeah, see? Fairy, it seemed to me, is very expansive and vast in this story. And I was, I was confused when, like, his, when he came home. I thought maybe like his wife would say, like, where have you been for the past two months or something like that? <laughs> like, he's going into, like, valleys, into oceans, and it doesn't, uh, I can't remember, I might be wrong, or I might have skipped, I don't know, like, forgotten, but I don't know, like, if there's, like, a threshold. I think it's just part of the landscape that he just goes to. Yeah, yeah. I agree, there are two really important things there, I think. <laughs> First, you're right, the time is not really clear. On the one hand, he does seem to be leaving home for a while. He's not just, like, goes out and then, like, comes home for dinner and has been to ferry for two months. It's not quite as pronounced as that. We're told that he does go on journeys um, for business. And, of course, if you are a smith, you may have to, indeed, tra in a small rural town, you might have to, indeed, travel to do, as the story suggests, you know, get supplies like, like pig iron and stuff like that in order to do your smith work. Um, and he does do that, we're told. But that's not why he goes traveling. So he probably is away from home for a couple days. But you're right, it sounds like some of his journeys in Ferry are really quite long. And it's not obvious that he's away from home for quite that long. We'll learn later on, he has been spending a long time away from home. So it isn't that the time spent in Ferry doesn't count or something like that. Um, although that kind of time shift is certainly... I think some of it might be happening, and we don't even really know. Um, it's unclear how much time exactly is passing for Smith while he's in Ferry and how much is going on at home. So I think that, I think that you're right to point to that. The other thing is the boundary. Um, you're right, it's very uncertain. He like, goes to Ferry. We don't know, like, how, is there a path? I mean, is there a gate? Is there, where, just as I mean, with Orfeo, there was a threshold, right? But even there, it was pretty sloppy. I mean, he was just in the woods and the, 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 you know, he, was, he was encountering uh, the fairies all the time. Um, but he gets there by going through, you know, the rock or tunnel or however it is he does it, uh, that passage where he follows the ladies. Um, with Lanval, of course, it's much less clear. Um, are they going, is he going to them? Have they come to him? Um, where is he geographically when he is with Triamor in the forest? That's unclear. And I think that the same thing is true here, too. Has he been given the ability to travel to this location? Does he have to travel? Is, I mean, is it something like you, if you go, you have to you know, walk 10 miles in this direction and you end up in ferry? It's not at all clear, and it's never said. 
Nothing like that is ever said. He just goes there and he comes back. Um, it's not instantaneous. It's not like here I am in my smithy and I can perform some kind of magical action or speak some sort of magical word and I will suddenly be in fairy. He's always traveling. He's always going away. Um, and we will see him in the second half coming on the road back from fairy. And he's, he's, he's walking again. It's, it's certainly not a finger-snapping affair. But I agree. It's important that the boundaries are... Okay. It also seems that he doesn't walk through the same part of fairy twice. Like, when we walk down the road, we expect to see the same tree, the same house. But it doesn't seem when he walks into fairy, he'll always be walking past the same things. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, it's like, you know, maybe that could be explained by his being, you know, not at home in the terrain, and so he just can't find his way the same place twice. But, but we do get this implication, especially, remember, he, he finds the king's tree <laughs> at one point. And he always tries to find it again, and he can never find it again. Now, I can't prove that that's not a result of his own, you know, incompetence as a pathfinder or whatever, but... It does seem, as Kat suggests, the implication is that the ways are different, in fact. That he is, in a sense, granted a sight of the tree the first time and denied it thereafter. Because he's trying to find it in camp. So it, the, the geography does not seem dependable in that way. What, what, what else do we know about the geography of Fair? That is the internal geography, not its relation to our geography. Matt? Well, we know it has a shoreline. Yeah, there's a coast. Smith thinks it's an island, but we don't know where he's right. Yeah. And there are mountains that are away from the shoreline, which believes to be the center of the island, although we don't know that for sure. Yeah, he has a sense, though it seems, based on his observations, his sense of there being what he calls inner and outer (coughs) fairy seems to be right. I mean, he detects a clear difference when he crosses over into inner fairy. Now, again, is he right about it being an island and that he's actually moving to the center? Yeah, we don't really know that. But... Um, there do seem to be two zones, the zones which he calls outer fairy and inner fairy. And he says the difference between inner fairy and outer fairy is like the difference between outer fairy and our world. It's a major, it's a major difference. So not all is equal in fairy. Um, and so there is this sense of his, his going deeper in, his coming closer to the real thing, the higher things. And of course it's there that he meets the maidens dancing near the end of today's reading, right? Where he actually has that encounter when he is gently rebuked for his presumption in doing what he's been doing. Because what he's been doing has not just been wandering, it's been deliberate exploration, right, Arthur? Well, yeah, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking at the beginning of when uh, Tolkien is describing his journeys, um, he says that uh, Smith... (coughs) initially just saw all these pleasant places, fields, flowers, um, and I kind of wonder if that was as far as the star was supposed to take him, and then it's Smith's um, desire to see more, which is pushing this, this boundary mm-hmm. for himself. Yeah, I mean, he is certainly making the choice, and I think you're right, he does, it's not that he does that from the beginning. He is not, from the first day, determined to you know, penetrate to the centermost part of fairy. Um, he doesn't. And how does the star work? What do we, what can we conclude, both from what we see in his 
reception, his receiving of the star, and from this conversation that he has with the maiden at the end, where he sort of, again, the place where he's kind of rebuked and realizes that his attitude towards the star was wrong. What do we see? How does the star work? Good. It's a dangerous place, fairy. It, it, this not just perilous in the sense that it is so wonderful and so beautiful that it will change you in ways that you can't necessarily calculate, and also that it might tempt you not to return to the world. Those are two ways in which fairy, even if good and beautiful, is perilous. It's also just literally dangerous. You might get killed there. There is stuff there that might rough you up or kill you. Um, but we're told he's protected. So I, that's a really important point. The star does protect him. It protects him from the lesser <laughs> evils. They can't... T- or, it, it, read it again. Yes. The lesser evils avoided the star, and the, from the greater evils he was protected. Not by the star, presumably. The lesser evils he's shielded from by the star. They won't come close to the star. From the greater evils, he was guarded. Right. So he is a guest. He's being protected and also therefore presumably watched while he's there. He's not stopped. Even if his explorations are presumptuous, which they do seem to be, or at least become, over time, he's not punished. He's not forbidden. You know, there's no, no, no fairy warriors show up in front of him and say, dude, get out. <laughs> you can't come this way. Marta? One fact, the way that he does finally learn that he may have pushed the boundary too, too far is not with this aggressive, like, get out of our land. It's, it's from that poor tree. It says, you know, you don't belong here. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. There are really two moments. There's the maiden, conversation from the maiden that I talked about, and yeah, the business with the birch tree. Right? The birch tree tells him, go away. <coughs> you don't belong here. And he's done harm. Not to himself, to the tree. He's done harm. And he does stay away for a long time after that. But he can't stay away forever. And it's after that that he finally crosses the mountains and goes to Innerfairy and meets the maidens. How is he rebuked? What does the maiden say which draws his attention to the fact that he has been presumptuous? Uh, she says, have you no fear of what the queen might say if she knew of this? Have you no fear of what the queen might say? Unless she'd been invited. Has the queen invited you? And he's like, oh. <laughs> I know. Not, but, but see that his realization is not just Oh shoot! I don't have an invitation, and I've just been found out. Like you know, I was crashing this party, and I've been found. It's not that. What's his realization? 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, this was an invitation-only party? I feel silly. <laughs> right? That's awkward. Yeah, that's the realization that he has. And he realizes he should have realized that it was invitation That he had been totally taking it on himself to explore inner fairy. There is a queen of fairy who has authority and whose authority he has been ignoring or not thinking about. He gets there to fairy because of the star. How did he get the star? He swallowed it. He swallowed it, yeah. He swallows it, swallows it, and then hacks it up later on. Oh, that's not... Tolkien says it more elegantly than that. But yeah, Steph, what, what else is important about how he gets it? It was one of the items baked in the 24th East cake, and it just happened to be in his slice, as opposed to any of the other trinkets that were put in the cake. Yeah, just, just, just by chance, right? By luck, he ended up with the star in his slice. Could have been anybody. There are 24 kids at the feast. Smith was the lucky one? He asks suggestively. <laughs> Emma? I kind of doubt it was just by chance, just because of like the sheer amount of, of attention that like Alice is looking at this is a magic from fairy putting it in the cake because it's from fairy. <laughs> I I keep feeling Alice had a hand in this somehow. Noakes' idea, right? Noakes wants to put it in the cake. What's Noakes' explanation? It'll be fun. Oh yeah, kids love this kind of thing. Right? Trinkets and cakes. What else do kids like? Fairies and candy. Fairies and sugar. <laughs> right? I love his comment about, you know, fairies you grow out of. Sugar, not so much, but, uh, you know, kids love fairies and sugar. So, best case scenario, let's make sugar fairies on the cake. Bingo. It's a marketing ploy. Yeah. Oh, well, since this is Tolkien, I think that uh, we should rule out any sort of chance. Because he didn't, in his other books, he tends to explicitly say, this isn't love, this isn't chance, this is, this is fated to be, this is arranged. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think that's uh, that's true. Um, we Tolkien is not a big uh, fan of um, not a big fan of chance, or doesn't really talk about chance much. Um, What does Alf say about it? <coughs> well, let's just read the passage here. It's bottom of page 17. This is, the, this is Noakes, the cook, the master cook, explaining to the children what's happening. At last the cook took the knife and stepped up to the table. 
I should tell you, my dears, he said, that inside this lovely icing there is a cake made of many nice things to eat, but also stirred well in, there are many pretty little things, trinkets and little coins and whatnot, and I'm told that it is lucky to find one in your slice. There are twenty-four in the cake, so there should be one for each of you, if the fairy queen plays fair, but she doesn't always do so. She's a tricky little creature. You ask Mr. Prentice. The apprentice turned away and studied the faces of the children. No, I'm forgetting, said the cook. There's 25 this evening. There's also a little silver star, a special magic one, or so Mr. Prentice says. So be careful. If you break one of your pretty front teeth on it, the magic star won't mend it. But I expect it's a specially lucky thing to find all the same. Did Smith find it by chance? Well, he doesn't really find it at all. He just kind of eats it. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I mean, he, well, I guess he finds it when he hacks it up later on. <laughs> oh, look, there it is. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he, without knowing why he does it, he's like, oh, smack, it's in my forehead. Because um, that's the logical thing you do with a shining star that you hack up out of your mouth. <laughs> Trust you would all think to do the same thing right away. But no, I mean, it's not, it's not really his idea, right? Um... He's been given an invitation. By whom? Says Knox. The fairy queen. The fairy queen. The fairy queen is going to be the one, the little fairy queen on top of the cake, who's going to be the one who decides to give the trinkets to whichever kid. Now, Knox is an idiot. <laughs> he has no idea what he's talking about. And Prentice clearly is not happy. What's Prentice's story? What do we know about Prentice's story? It's perhaps a kinder way to ask that question. Who is it? I'm sort of, I don't know, suspects that he knows and is serious that this silver star is from Fairy since he, since it, he said it belonged to um, the master cook before him. And the master cook just like up and leaves one day, and he leaves his, his silver star behind. Yeah, he up and it's leaves re- once for a vacation and comes back, right, with this mysterious apprentice whom nobody knows. And then he leaves again, clearly leaving the apprentice in charge behind him. And apprentice is very serious about this fairy star thing, right? Well, that's funny, says Mr. Noakes when he finds it. No, it isn't. (laughs) It's fae. You'll notice also that Mr. Prentice uses his vocabulary correctly. Noakes doesn't even know how to talk about these things. He says, it's fairy, or so, not fairy as a noun, doofus. Fae (laughs) is the adjective, right? Um, It is a fae star. Um, Noakes has no idea what he's talking about. But what does Prentice say about it? Apart from speaking very seriously and saying uh, it's not funny. Does does Prentice think this is a good idea? The whole let's put the star in the cake thing? 
He does. He, I mean, even though Notes is a fool, he says, well, you know, we'll put it in the cake because that's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. Very much the right thing to do. You have no idea what you're talking about, but that's the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, Notes asks him to make the little fairy queen doll. He's like, something little thing with tinsel. Make a little fairy to put on the cake. And Prentice says, okay, just remember, this was your idea. And the doll he makes is nothing like the doll that Notes describes. It looks really quite impressive, the little fairy queen doll. What's Prentice's real name? Alf. Alf. Yeah. Alf. Oh. Yeah. 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 Um, I have my suspicions about it too. Back. Faye with an A is the adjective form of fairy. Faye with an E uh, means out of your mind uh, in a way that is seeking and welcoming death. Not very similar in the end. Um, uh, but yeah, F-A-Y. Is the, I mean, it, 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 goodness knows. I mean, it's derived from Middle English, and I you know, like, they weren't so rigorous about the spelling. Um, but in general, I think one is the, the adjective form that we're talking about here. Um, Smith has an invitation to fail. He was given it. He didn't seek it. He didn't choose it. And we're even told, har, 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 that it is the fairy queen that is deciding who gets what trinket. And in this case, in the case of the star, that seems to be right. That seems quite likely, actually. Especially when the issue of, do you have an invitation from the fairy queen, is explicitly raised later on. That, of course, is the first moment where we, get the, where we are told, and possibly the first moment when Smith explicitly is made aware of the fact that there really is a fairy queen. We know there's a king. He finds the king's tree. Um, and so I guess we could perhaps conclude that there's probably a queen. Um, but this is sort of the moment when Noakes's crude humor um, seems to have something else behind it. Um, so again, he did receive an invitation from the fairy queen in the star, but, that, but he didn't receive an invitation here. That doesn't mean, as he realizes, it doesn't mean he has a license to do whatever he wants and go anywhere he wants. And as Marta has pointed out, he should have already figured that out uh, when, the, when the birch tree told him uh, that he didn't have a right to be there or to do what he was doing. What was he doing? Do you remember that moment? And I, I want to talk about this in part because we haven't said nearly enough about how bizarre fairy 
you know, the stuff that when we were talking about Lang, I was calling rough edges, you know, like Black Bull of Norway stuff, you know, the stuff that you get in every sentence of Lord Dunsany, it's all over the place here. I mean, fairy is weird. There'll be some elements that will sound familiar, like, for instance, when Smith goes to the coast and he sees the elven armies landing and he's terrified, he doesn't know whom they're fighting or what they're doing. It's a lot like Orpheal, right? In the woods, seeing, I mean, he sees armies on the march and he doesn't know where they're coming from or where they're going. So some of those encounters are kind of similar, but then you get these other things which are really just hard to explain. The king's tree, what is it? What's the point of it? What's, how is it significant? What does it mean? In what sense is it the king's tree? Are we just saying that because it's huge? Apparently it is huge. Exactly, right. I mean, I guess, yeah. All the trees are his trees. All the trees are his trees, yeah. Or all the trees belong to themselves? I don't know. But, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's never explained. The birch tree sequence is, I think, the strangest of all. How does that start? How does he get into the trouble that leads eventually to the unfortunate injury of the birch tree? Aaron? He sees a lake that he wants to try and step into, but when he does, it becomes solid and then he falls. <laughs> yeah, he goes, he, he, he wants to go into the lake. Why does he want to go into the lake? It's in the lake. Fire creatures? Yeah, he sees some kind of fiery creatures dancing around beneath the surface of the lake. Finding this odd, as well he might, he goes to investigate it more closely. And he wants to go <coughs> see. I'll go into this lake, or at least I'll try to see what this is. And he, find, he tries to step into the water, fails to step into the water, steps onto the water instead, which is terrifically slippery, and he slips and falls on the water. And what happens then? And the wind gets mad. There's a noise, right? And the wind kicks up and attacks him. And he's blown over to the birch tree, which bends over and protects him, but gets torn by the wind. And then it's weeping, and he's grateful. Thank you, birch tree. And I, okay, we don't know what are the dancing fiery things below the water. Is this water or what? Why is it hard? Is it hard because it's not really water? Is it hard because it is water but turns into something else when he steps on it? Is it hard because it really is water but it's fairy water and he just like he's actually bouncing off the water because he's who he is and it's what it is? Is it the, why does it make the noise? Is it like an alarm system or something when he falls on it? Who is the wind and why is it is this one of the lesser or greater evils that's being let out? Or is it not an evil? Why is the wind angry at him? Why is the wind hunting him? Who is the birch tree? Why is it sentient? How does it talk? And why does it say what it does? And how does I mean all of these things, we don't know. 
we're given almost no backstory or explanation here at all. All we get are these mysteries. But what's the overall emphasis here? Tell, tell me what we do learn from this. It doesn't have to make sense in a, you know, a sort of a strict narrative way. We don't have to know the whole backstory and how everybody's related to everything else in order to get something from this. What do we get? What do we see? What do we learn from this scene? Let me ask a more specific question. What do we learn about Smith and Smith's relationship to Farron? We can see that he feels that there's a take-home lesson here as he doesn't come back from it. I can tell all semester we as a class have been really uncomfortable talking about these things. For some reason, whenever I ask you questions about inexplicable things, you don't seem to have any answers. (laughs) I find this inappropriate. (laughs) I guess what I would say is, don't be afraid. We do get something from this. One of the great and liberating things about strange passages which don't seem to make sense is that you're much less likely to be wrong. (laughs) Bestie, go ahead. I think it's trying to put a um, what we understand in (coughs) the sense of fairing. He's trying to make sense of it through this is water. Those are fire creatures, you know, this, you know, etc. you know, and it's going back to that whole thing that we can't really understand fairy, but it's all the kind of, like, weird, convoluted, like, what is going on phrases are all, Yeah. you're not actually understanding this, this is what he's seeing, right. but I can't make sense of it anymore than he can. Yeah, yeah, and the relationships are all messed up. I, like you look and you see, okay, this fire creatures. Okay, the fire creatures are underwater. That doesn't make sense. You can't have fire creatures underwater. Smith's response to that is, huh, that's weird. Let me check that out, right? There's got to be some explanation for why we've got fire creatures underwater, right? And so he goes to, it to try to explain it because it doesn't make sense to him either, any more than it makes sense to us. One thing to keep in mind. But I'm asking you about things like this. Perhaps, see now I'm theorizing about why you won't answer. Perhaps you are thinking that what I'm wanting you to do or inviting you to do is do some kind of like awesome St. Augustine-esque symbolic interpretation of this. I don't think so. Now, that's an understandable impulse. Often, you know, in a work of literature, if we find something that doesn't seem to make any sense, you know, one go-to response to that is say, ah, Symbolism. <laughs> I can make sense of that. I can reduce that to sense. Uh, and that was, that's a, a, a fine and admirable approach. I, I, I'm not saying anything against it. 
But it's not what I'm asking you to do. I don't want you to think when I say, like, what do you make of the fire creatures, that the answer I expect is something like, I believe that the dancing fire creatures represent the innate desire of humanity for... Uh, wait, help. Life. Uh, life and vitality. It is the life force of the very earth which he is perceiving, and I'm not looking for that. It's fun. Uh, like, you know, it's like a great icebreaker at parties. Uh, it's not, uh, I think, be useful at the end. Um, but there are some simple, as Pascal was saying, we can see the relationships are weird. And what we can see is Smith investigating them, just as we want to investigate them. We can see a kind of we can see a kind of similarity there. Look at him, right? We don't have to explain all the things. I don't think we can explain all the things. I think it would be silly to say like, no, no, no. Let us probe to the depth these dancing fire creatures until we understand everything about them. It is obviously impossible for us to understand well, really, almost anything about them. But we can see what images are being put together here, what kinds of things they might suggest. But also, most importantly, we can see Smith and how he acts and how he responds, what he seems to be taking from this, and what we're supposed to be doing with his story here. Christine? Um, I guess, well, what, what we were saying before with um, Alf sort of like coaxing um, this, this will be related. Um, yeah. Notes. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And how we were saying, like, it wasn't by chance that this technically can be seen as an invitation, maybe. Yeah. And, um, and yet, these creatures in fairy are under the impression that he doesn't belong and he that he doesn't have an invitation. Uh, a part of me, like, ventures to guess that maybe, since it was the queen, in a way, that decided him that she's inviting his human curiosity in in her world that, you know, it's not like, oh, by the way, everyone in fairy, he's coming, let him pass. Right. Like, it's, I, I feel like... There's some of that, right, with greater evils, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, people, he's coming, like, you know, greater evils, back off. Or, like, somebody watch him, make sure to keep the greater evils away. Um, but, but anyway, sorry, but, but go on, go but, on. Oh, I mean, just basically what I was that it just seemed like she was like inviting a sort of curiosity from him and wanting him to, or at least maybe not, at least some dynamic of that. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, and you know, we've been talking about his presumption and his, what seems to be nearly transgression, but I do think it's important to remember when he is rebuked by the maiden in the dancing circle, it is very gentle. I mean, he, does, he is not in the end greeted by, what are you doing here? Explain yourself. You have no right to be here. The only time anything like that happens is with the birch tree. Oh, I have right. a smaller question. Yeah. So, was she the queen? She wasn't the queen all along. She just, she became the queen? Uh, we don't know who she is. She's just one of the maidens. Wait, at, at the, towards yeah, the end, it yeah. says that she was the... Later we will find this is, in fact, the fairy queen herself, which makes the whole invitation question the more awkward in retrospect. Right? Uh, he has here his first moment of saying, ooh, invitation, that's awkward. Later on it will be even more awkward in retrospect. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, why does the birch tree tell him he doesn't belong here? 
What do we? What, what are we to take from that, Dorian? Well, the session really doesn't belong there. I mean, as far as boundary, the normal affairs should be interacting. Really. Also, he's just training around whoever he wants to. That's fine. Like, I think the trooper is trying to say that there are rules with respect here. So everything's different. Guys like see about the fire pit against in the water. There's certain things that respect and understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. His. It seems that. His transgression is not like you have no right to be here at all, but what he does seems to be wrong. That is, what happens, the, ultimately, the wounding of the birch tree is his fault. And he realizes it's his fault. He feels bad about it. And so the question, therefore, what did he do wrong? Coming there at all? Maybe. But I agree, I mean, during, as you suggested, I think the, it's the investigation of the fire creatures, Right? I should be able to get in that lake and see what's going on here. No, you shouldn't. That's where things go wrong. Right? And he slips and falls into the noise and the wind. That seems to be a consequence of his... I shall... I shall probe this strange fire-dancing lake and figure it out. No, no, that you shouldn't do. That his attitude, his response, seems to be not... Well, I'm not 100% sure exactly what the correct response should have been, but that was obviously not it. There's also a delicate hint that his attitude towards the king's tree is not the way it should be either. At least in that he's, I mean, you know, nobody, no wind comes and attacks him, but, but he's not permitted to return to it. Matt? Uh, I'd just like to put on the ambiguity of basically why he's there. It's like, okay, he gets the star, and he goes in, and, he, and the star lets him go in and explore without getting eaten or whatever. Right. And so we, we assume that he's there by the grace of the fairy queen, but really he gets the fairy queen thing from Nokes, who's an idiot, as yeah. previously stated. Yes. Uh, all Al tells us is it comes from fairy, as a statement of like country of origin. Yes. Not from game to him. And brief stylistic moment. With the line about the lesser evils and the greater evils. By putting that uh, that guarded in the passive voice, it avoids telling us who's guarding there. For all we know, he's guarded by a, an, an even greater evil. Like, right. We don't know what the here. It seems unlikely, but yeah, no, exactly. So we, we don't know. Well not have the very Queen's blessing to even be in this country. It's very unclear. It is unclear. It is unclear. Um, and his relationship with the king of king and queen of fairy will be more under discussion, of course, in the second half. But, but I agree. We don't even know. We don't even know many of the things that we've been suggesting. But it's possible. It's implied. Emma. One thing I've noticed is like with the tree, with the king, the king's tree and the birch tree. It's when he goes and he seeks it that he, he can't get yeah. to it again. And like things he finds by chance, like the star, or even the beetle. Right. Yeah, I agree. That that seems to me a pretty safe trend. When he goes looking for something, he rarely is able to find it or is punished. Um, or in the last case, rebuke. That last time he does go seeking, you know, inner fairy and finds it. And that's when he's chided for his attitude. Um it's almost time to go, and we haven't talked about something else that I really want to talk about, which is 
the effect of fairy on the mundane world, on people and things from terra cognita, um, which is Wooten Major itself here, we see two instances of transformation. It is not explicitly stated, though quite plainly implied, that the previous master cook went to fairy. That's why he was changed. We're really pretty sure of that, not only just because of the mysterious vanishing and reappearing and vanishing, but because of the star. I mean, he got that star comes from fairy, and it was the former master cook's star that was in his box. So he went to fairy, and when he comes back from fairy, how is he different, the old master cook? He's jollier. He laughs more. And makes other people laugh. Yeah. He sings. He sings, which is not expected of Master Cooks. Right? He used to sing it at the feasts. Post-memorable vacation. Right? Um, he sings a lot now. And acts strangely, like leaving without notice. How about Smith? What's different about him? Not like we're given an extensive before in the before and after picture, but we're told ways in which he changes. How does he change right away? Even before he slaps the star on his forehead, how does he change? He's more graceful. He's more graceful. And his voice becomes Yes, his voice. Even when he just says good morning, his voice is good to listen to. And even before he, he has the, the star on his brow, he, his voice is altered. As soon as he ingests the star. And then afterwards, what happens? How does he... I mean, I've been, I've been saying um, with comedic crudeness that he hacks up the star. How does he hack up the star? He opens his mouth to sing and it falls out. He opens his mouth to sing and it falls out. And singing, of course, is one of the things that he becomes noted for. Of course, we've also seen the former Master Cook start singing after visiting Fairy. And remember, it's that moment. It's his 10th birthday. It's the morning of his... He goes out before dawn on his 10th birthday. And he's seeing the world around him. And it reminds him of Fairy, which he's never visited and knows nothing about. And then he has that moment where he connects it with himself. But in Fairy, the people sing too. And he opens his mouth to sing. That is, in following his own words, to join himself to fairy. To fit himself within that. And that's when the star emerges. Which he then immediately puts on his forehead and is marked by. And it shines when he sings. And everybody loves to hear Smith sing. But he does more than sing. He's a really good um, smith. He's a really good smith. I mean, this guy can make horseshoes like you ne- never believe. And what else? What is his specialty? One of the most special, my favorite part is like that is the gate work. Yeah. Once closed, you just can't even like, you can't move. Yeah. Gates. Gates are his specialty. He makes amazing gates. That's not symbolic at all. Not <laughs> even slightly symbolic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a little conspicuous that that would be his particular specialty. What is his particular non-specialty? Weapons, which he never makes. He never forged a weapon of any kind. But we're told he could have forged some cracking good ones 
he doesn't. Um, when does he sing? When does he sing? Sometimes he sings when he is smithying and sometimes not. When, what is he smithying when he sings? When he's making the really beautiful, artistic sort of, uh, sort of things. Even if it's just something mundane, like a pot, he's going to make it so it's, so it's the most glorious and beautiful pot that you've ever seen in your life. Yes, yes. And when he is making things just for pleasure, when he's making, when he is just crafting beautiful things, that's when he sings. So his song is associated with his craftsmanship, with his art, because Smith's Smith work becomes art, not just craft, but art. And he, but even his craft, of course, we can't de-emphasize that. He becomes the greatest craftsman around. That connection is, I think, really interesting and really important. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the star and the flower. I want to come back to the flower uh, briefly next time. If I forget the flower, remind me to talk about the flower next time. So I want to do that. And then we'll, we will look at, you know, the rest of the story for next time. See you on Friday. That's all for this episode of Fairy and Fantasy. Next time, Professor Olson wraps up his discussion of Smith of Wooten Major. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.